In this latest episode, I speak with Dr. Austin Perlmutter, a board-certified internal medicine physician, contributing author to Psychology Today, and co-author of a new book called Brainwash. He co-wrote this book with his father, Dr. David Perlmutter. Uh, In the episode, we discuss many of the key principles from Austin's book and how uh, manufactured foods influence our mental state and can influence our decision-making, our emotions. We cover chronic inflammation and the effects on our body and those uh, chronic inflammations, how they affect our mind. We also cover a couple of the things that we can do to counter that, to reduce the inflammation and take control of our lives uh, mentally, emotionally, and physically. So uh, enjoy the episode. Uh, Check out the book on brainwashbook.com. Enjoy. My guest on today's episode is Dr. Austin Perlmutter, a board-certified internal medicine physician, contributor to Psychology Today, and co-author of a new book called Brainwash. Welcome to the podcast, Austin. Thank you, Scott, for having me. So uh, I definitely am looking forward to digging into the book and really talking about some of the practical as well as the scientific information on it. But first, wanted to get a little bit about you get your background. Sure. Well, I guess it depends how far back you want to go, but I think the most salient points um, are that I went to college with the idea that I wanted to be a writer. That has kind of always been my passion. And my goal at that point was actually to do young adult fiction and children's fiction. And kind of in, in the while I was doing the, the English major, I was taking the pre-med courses as well because I've also liked science and I felt like these are important things to, to know and understand. And as I progressed through my training in, I guess, college and learning about how to, to write and synthesize ideas, I found that, I guess, where I needed to be was actually not in writing. It was in, in medicine. And there are a variety of reasons for that. But most important, I feel, I want to be able to communicate important information to other people, to help people to manage chronic diseases, and to help people to improve their decision-making as it relates to their health. And I took this background in writing and started to write a lot of blog posts, health-related blog posts for several websites, went through medical school, and then decided I wanted to go into internal medicine as a residency, because that would give me the most insight into chronic disease management. And as I'm sure you're aware, and as I'm sure listeners are aware, chronic diseases are the top killers in the United States and really worldwide. They're also the top causes of our, our healthcare expenditure, or their top uh, expenses. And these are, in many ways, preventable diseases. These are things like heart disease, diabetes, some types of cancers, lung-related diseases. We can do so much better when it comes to preventing that. And so I decided to go into internal medicine, again, because this is the training in medicine that best prepares you for managing chronic diseases. And I finished my internal medicine residency about two years ago, and at that point decided that I wanted to do something to to bring these messages of prevention to the larger picture, to the, the larger public. And I was lucky to be able to work with my father on this book, Brainwash, where our goal was to give the reader the tools that they needed 
to be able to understand how their brain has been in several ways kind of hijacked by the modern world for poor decision making and how they can take it back for better choices. So that's been, again, my trajectory over the last, let's say, eight to 10 years, and certainly not something where I feel I've reached the, uh, the absolute uh, plan for the next 10 years. But I'm really happy to be able to bring these messages to the public because I think that of anything we do, the way that we make decisions has really not gotten enough emphasis. And it's something that we can leverage to improve our quality of life, really independent of who you are. Sure. No, that's um, it's a great way to just blend a variety of interests and skills. Um, and especially when you talk about communicating uh, things around medicine, around wellness, um, and just finding that practical approach to being able to make that progress down that path. Uh, it seems like that's an area that always seems to be a challenge in being able to, you know, act on some of the information. There's In today's society, we have tons of information. Uh, it's just sometimes how do you distill it all down to yeah. actionable? That is absolutely right. And, you know, again, as my dad and I say, you have all these books on your bookshelf. I, I have books back here. You probably can't see them on right now, the podcast, but I have a ton of books behind me. And uh, that is great. But unless you're able to take the information from those books and translate that into action, they're really just, you know, papers sitting on the cabinet or on the bookshelf. They're not doing anything for you. And you know, we all have this great knowledge that comes from listening to podcasts like this one or watching maybe tv and learning something from the tv listening to the radio but so much of the time it goes in one ear and out the other and so the question is how do we create strategies so that we're able to follow through on this valuable information um you know like the most basic information is you need to eat healthy food you need to exercise there's nobody out there saying it doesn't matter what you eat. It doesn't matter if you exercise. We know that that stuff is important. And we know that those two things combined would probably cut out a huge percentage of these top killers of Americans, right? That if we ate right. healthier food and exercise, rates of heart disease and diabetes and hypertension and stroke would all drop dramatically. But it's not a question of knowing that those things are important. It's a question of saying, once I know that's important, how am I going to actually make those changes in my life so that I eat healthier food and so that I exercise? And something that we describe in the book is, unfortunately, especially as it relates to eating healthy food, the deck has been stacked against us. When you go to the grocery store and you look at the food that's on the shelf, 68% of those foods of, in a study of 1.2 million foods in America contained added sugar, and that's food and drinks. And why does that matter? It's because added sugar does nothing for us. Maybe if we were hummingbirds, it would be a good plan. But for the, for the average person, you need to be getting a whole lot less sugar than what you're consuming. That added sugar is unnecessary calories, but it also spikes the production of um, the, the glucose in your bloodstream, or it converts to that glucose in your bloodstream. It leads to insulin resistance. It leads to adipose tissue deposition, metabolic syndrome, it's really just not good for us. And, um, you know, it's, it's in essence a poison that is in the majority of the foods and vegetables, or sorry, the foods and drinks that we are consuming. And so if you think about this from the perspective of, you know, 
the the messaging we get, which is eat healthier foods. Yeah, that's that's a nice idea. But if you are only exposed to unhealthy foods, it makes it much harder for us to make the good decisions. So the first part of the book is describing how, again, the deck has been kind of stacked against us, and we have to understand that before we're able to start making healthier choices. And to appreciate that, you know, in many ways, it's not our fault for being unhealthy, but it is on us to start making decisions to become healthier. So along those lines, what's, what's something that we can do to kind of hedge against that? Right. So the, the first things that we need to be doing are to be aware of how the modern world has been set up as it relates to our relationships, as it relates to our general health, as it relates to our mental health, to understand that, for example, when you turn on the television, those ads are specifically designed to entice you to buy products. They are designed to uh, make you feel like you're not enough as you are right now, whether that's being uh, not skinny enough, whether that's being unhappy, whether that's being um, not having that ideal life that whoever else has on Instagram, you need to understand that the advertisement game is set up for you to feel like you don't have enough. And once you can appreciate that, then you can start developing your own sense of enough or whatever it is that you actually care about so that you're not making the decisions that only benefit other people that are trying to sell you a product. So that's the first thing, is to be aware of what's going on. The next thing is, and just as important, is to build a brain that enables you to make good decisions. And so if you think about the decisions that we're making, what we decide to do is a reflection of the wiring of our brains. And if we want to make good choices as opposed to bad decisions, we need to design a brain that preferentially makes good choices. And how do we do this? Well, there are a variety of different tools that are readily available and that are completely free. Some of the easiest are going to be getting enough sleep, uh, getting a bit of exposure to nature, maybe doing a 10-minute mindfulness or meditation session each day. Now, why are those things important? Well, if you think about sleep, we've thought for a long time that it was just kind of a second tier activity, that you do that when everything else is taken care of. But it turns out that if you want to be productive, if you want to be creative, if you want to be emotionally stable, and if you want to make good decisions, getting that seven to eight hours of sleep a night is absolutely essential. And we can see from the scientific literature how that sleep changes our brains. We can see that after one night of sleep deprivation, there are changes in the connection patterns and activation patterns within our brains, and that translates into increased emotional reactivity. We also know, I mean, we, I think we all kind of understand this based on the way we feel when we don't get enough sleep, that if you skip sleep, you're not going to be able to focus as well. I know this is definitely the case for me. Uh, I mean, just think about what it's like to try to drive through the night when you're really tired. You're not maintaining focus on the road. It's clear yeah. that that's what happens. but if you think about how that translates into other aspects of your life, let's imagine you want to go to work. You want to make good decisions so that you um, can optimize for your company. You know, you want to make good decisions as it relates to financial choices in your life, right? As it maybe uh, relates to the stock market. You want to make good decisions as it relates to your relationships and being there for your spouse or your partner and not yelling at them about something trivial. And you want to make good decisions for your own mental health and for your own physical health. So you don't want to be buying junk food at the 
at the store. Um, you don't want to be watching a whole ton of stressful media that doesn't really benefit you at all. For all of these things, getting enough sleep is absolutely essential in enabling you to know the difference between those two things, what is good for you and what isn't good for you, and being able to then act on the better of those two options. And so the other things that I had mentioned there briefly, nature therapy, getting out into nature for just a short amount of time. And even, let's say you're in quarantine, looking at pictures of nature or having some plants in your home, these are, are ways that you can lower the stress level, both in your cortisol levels in your blood and also your physical experience of how stressed you are as well as lowering levels of inflammation and these things translate into actually making better decisions and then finally this mindfulness meditation practice this doesn't have to be anything that is you know religious or anything like that it can be turns out prayer is a wonderful way of being mindful but just sitting and paying attention to your breath for a couple of minutes is sufficient to give you um some brain regulating powers. It calms down the more emotional part of your brain and enables you to think more clearly. So these are things that anybody listening can do. As I said, they're all free and they're a wonderful way to reset your brain for better decisions. Yeah, that's great information. Uh, one of the things you mentioned is mindfulness and that's been a newer thing for me. Sometimes, it, like you said, it could have religious or some um, negative connotations to it but it's really just focusing on slowing down your mind, especially with today. I mean, we're caffeine inundated with just about everything. You mentioned the sugar aspect and then technology and the influence in technology and how that's rewiring our brains a little bit. It seems like it's harder and harder to really just slow down and enjoy the moment. I think you're absolutely right. And there has been this bug put in our ears over the last few decades that's telling us you need to hustle, you need to be productive, you need to produce something. And, you know, I think it's great to, to do things, to make a change in the world, to create something that's never existed before, to participate in, in activities, but you have to have the other side of that. If you don't recharge, you're not going to be as productive when you show up at work the next day. And why mindfulness is so exciting for me and why I think it's something everyone should engage in is that it enables you to reset such that you're going to do better at the activities you're already needing to do. And just, you know, to the, the more general point, we can see from the scientific literature that creating these pauses where you're off the grid um, are so beneficial to us when we are on the grid. So you can see that, for example, when people go out into nature for a few days, their creativity levels go up. You can see that when children go out into nature for a few days, they come back with an improved ability to recognize the emotions that other people are experiencing. And you can see that when people practice a bit of mindfulness, they tend to be less stressed. Why does that matter? It's because when you have chronic stress, that is going to functionally in your brain disengage the part of your brain necessary for making good decisions. So unless we incorporate these more restful um, activities into our lives where we're off the grid, both in our houses, right, being mindful in our houses, or maybe getting out of our houses when that's possible, going out into nature for a bit, we just aren't going to do as well at the activities that 
everyone tells us we need to do well, right? Or that we actually do need to do well. We're not going to do as well in our jobs. We're not going to do as well in our relationships. And we're not going to do as well when it relates to our own sense of physical and mental health. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, like we're saying that the always on, I mean, mention religion. I mean, it, whether you are a Christian or not, I, I happen to be, and you know, it's biblical, right? You, you go to Genesis one, they talk about, um, you know, God even took a day to, to rest for one day, not that he needed it, but just to set the precedent. And so whatever that rest, that Sabbath or, or whatever your belief construct, there's some uh, validity to that across all platforms. Yeah, I think this also comes um, or relates to this question of what are you trying to get out of your life? And are you short-term oriented or long-term oriented? Because if you're trying to maximize your short-term gains, then that's probably going to come at the expense of long-term success, right? If you want to say, I'm going to use up all of my fuel really quickly, drink all the coffee, spend every waking moment on this project, ignore my other obligations, that's a very short-sighted plan. And if you're thinking about, I want to be successful over several decades, I want to build relationships, a job, um, an internal sense of wellness that lasts and is durable, despite a whole bunch of external forces, then you have to start taking into account how to build in those restful periods. Otherwise, it's just not going to work out. And I think we just continue to get these messages um, as to how everybody else is working so hard and is, is sacrificing at every given moment. But, you know, maybe some of those people are successful, but those are the outliers in general people who are successful have some balance built into their lives and it, we have to start doing it early. Otherwise it's going to be increasingly challenging. Things will just, your calendar will get full and you'll find yourself like so many people maybe having all of the busyness, but none of the actual success that you were looking for. Yeah. Activity versus productivity. It's just the flurry of stuff. And then you turn back. I don't know how many times I've looked back on my day and I felt like I was stressed out and busy. And then I look at the inventory of things I wanted to get done. And one of the 12 is checked. And I'm like, yeah. what did I do all day? But you were busy. That's right. I was busy. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you mentioned inflammation. And so that's a term. So you mentioned inflammation. And so that's a term that I've heard around and, and there's pros or good inflammation and bad inflammation. Um, can you ex explain inflammation from a chronic perspective? Sure. Well, let's start briefly with inflammation as a, a general topic, and then we'll build into why chronic inflammation is such a problem. Inflammation is the body's immune response to a perceived threat. And the most basic understanding of how this works is acute inflammation. Let's say you get stung by a bee. When that happens, you're going to have a, let's say that, that stinger goes into your skin your body will mobilize an inflammatory or an immune response. It'll bring in all of these cells in order to fight off this perceived threat, which is the bee stinger. And so that part of your arm will get red. It'll get swollen. It'll get warm. It'll become raised and, and painful. And that is acute inflammation. And in many ways, this is a good thing because inflammation in the acute sense helps mobilize your body to fend off this perceived threat. Now that's very different from chronic inflammation. 
And chronic inflammation is more of a low-grade smoldering inflammation that's going on throughout the body. So this isn't necessarily something you can look at somebody and say, look, you have that swelling, that redness, that pain, you have inflammation. It's more, well, let's look at your blood markers. Let's see what are your levels of what we call inflammatory markers like CRP, interleukin-6, and even hemoglobin A1c. Why do we worry so much about chronic inflammation? It turns out that this chronic inflammation is associated with the development of multiple conditions. So things like heart disease, things like dementia. And most recently, we've learned that this chronic inflammation is strongly associated with mental health issues, specifically depression. What we see is that some forms of depression may be, in fact, caused by high levels of inflammation in the blood or just high levels of inflammation in the body. We see that when volunteers are given a a shot that induces inflammation, so in this case, it would be something like uh, part of a bacteria or even some types of immunizations, vaccinations that cause a short-term inflammatory response, that that inflammatory response corresponds with high levels of all of the depressive symptoms. So you can induce depression in somebody by giving them something that causes inflammation. Now, that is really new stuff. It's really important stuff to understand. But in this book we wrote, my dad and I talk about how this inflammation might actually go one step further. And in the last year, we've seen a couple of studies that have shown how levels of inflammation actually correspond with more present focused decision making. So that same inflammation that's going on that you know uh, is in the bloodstream and might be increasing your risk of developing diabetes and heart disease and stroke, that inflammation in the brain seems to cause us to make more short-term oriented decisions, make bad decisions. So it's really important to understand all this because it gives us context for why eating a healthy diet and exercising are so key, right? If we're able to eat healthy foods that lower inflammation, if we're able to exercise in a moderate fashion to lower inflammation, these are interventions that may in fact be improving our decision-making, may in fact be improving our mental health, and may in fact be lowering our risk of developing these chronic diseases through the lowering of inflammation. Yeah, that's so to tie in an earlier point you're talking about this chronic inflammation, but so it sounds like we are what we eat, right? <laughs> Nutrition, you know, it's an oversimplified term, but, it, and it doesn't just impact um, nutrition though. There's, there's a broader context to that. Is that fair? Yeah. And I'd say, you know, there's, there's no um, argument really against the idea that we are what we eat. I mean, I guess when you're born, you are what your mother ate, but then once you are existing in the world, the cells of your body are made up of the proteins, the fats the, um, that you ingested, right? That's, that's where we get the cells of our body. It's not like we are creating them out of the atmosphere that we're you know, right. slowly building it up. So yes, the cells in your body, we, we talk about a lot how you want to eat omega-3s because those omega-3 fatty acids help to make your cell membranes more fluid and more resistant to um, to stresses like oxidative stress. So yes, that is a very important point. But what you had mentioned, I think is a much more exciting way of looking at this, which is 
what you eat is also going to determine how you think, how you make decisions, how your mental health is structured. So this means that when you are choosing to, let's say, eat junk food or to eat something that uh, like a, a big vegetable dish or something like a, a grass-fed animal over a farm-raised animal that's been eating a whole bunch of grain, those are decisions that you're making for your future decisions. So you can see how you can get into this spiral of eating these junk foods, these processed foods that increase inflammation, that lead you to making more present-focused or short-sighted decisions. And what are those short-sighted decisions? Those are going to be things like eating more of those junk foods. So you get stuck. And it's really uh, important for people to understand that because it also shows us how we can escape from this spiral, that by lowering inflammation through eating healthier foods, the fog will be lifted a little bit and you won't be so um, compelled to continue to eat these things that you know are bad for you, but you can't help yourself, but continue to choose. So when I choose that candy bar, it does a physiological effect that other foods do, but it's short lived. And is, is that what creates that craving? Is that a- Yeah. So I think that there are a couple of, uh, topics that are, are worth dissecting from what you just said. So one is what actually happens when you are craving something. And this is more of a dopamine based response. Um, Dopamine has been talked about for a long time as the neurotransmitter of addiction, and it is that, but it's important to note that it's not so much the, that dopamine gives us the reward, right? So if you ate the candy bar, it's not that, that high level of dopamine is what's going to make you feel, oh, wonderful, I'm so glad I did this. What dopamine does, though, is it tells your brain this was something that is worth continuing to pursue or not. So if you eat that candy bar, you're going to get that dopamine bump and it's telling the brain, hmm, I learned that this is something that then produces later on some endorphins or opioids in my brain that makes me feel good. So in any case, what I I mean to say here is that, yes, that these modern day foods are designed to activate our dopaminergic system. They are designed to be craving worthy so that we continue to want to eat those foods. But as it relates to the inflammation piece, I think that it's better to look at the inflammation as more of a chronic buildup. And so how does that happen? It's probably more through when you eat these unhealthy foods, they build up fat cells, specifically this visceral fat, the fat that exists usually around the belly is where we think about it. And those fat cells actually produce higher levels than other cells of inflammatory chemicals. So the process seems to be that when you eat foods that are unhealthy, let's say refined carbohydrates, let's say unhealthy fats, those translate into the development of more of this unhealthy adipose tissue that builds up around the gut. And that adipose tissue or those fat cells actually produce signals that go up to your brain and cause you to make poor choices because those signals are in fact the inflammatory signals. So it's a multi-step process, but I think it takes a little bit of time to build up because you actually have to build up the mass of that visceral fat that is then sending the signal up to the brain. We talked on uh, food and diet and the influence um, and sleep as another contributing factor. So we kind of glazed over technology. Um, obviously technology, there's like anything else, there's pros and cons, right? It's a great tool. We're able to do this podcast. We're able to connect. 
we're able to, uh, I'm sure it probably helps in your medical research with big data, but there's some things that we're starting to learn um, that I'm sure is in your field of study that are negative contributors. Can you expand on that? Sure. Uh, I think that you were, were right when you said that technology is, is a good thing and can also be a bad thing. You know, it's very easy for people to just group things into the good and bad polar opposites and say, oh, technology is bad. We should all move to the farm. But that's, that's not practical for most people. And I don't think that's actually a good plan. On the other hand, I don't think it's reasonable to say all technology is good and people are just worried about nothing. You know, it turns out that like many things, technology just emphasizes what already exists in the world. And so what you have is this incredibly powerful tool that can, it can emphasize things like negativity. It can emphasize things like anxiety and anger um, and polarization towards other people. But it can also be a wonderful way of bringing people together. So the, the bottom line is technology itself is not good or bad. It is how it is used that matters. And one unfortunate part of the modern day reality as it relates to technology is that much of it and some of the, the biggest platforms that people use have been purposefully engineered to capture our attention and to capture our money um, to make us upset because that is how these things profit. So if you are a streaming video service, for example, you keep eyeballs on the screen by putting people uh, into a queue that promotes kind of more sensationalized content or more extreme content, because that's where people will continue to tune in. It's the same with the news. If you are a news station and you put up, oh, the world is a wonderful place, there are a couple of bad things going on, but we're going to have a balanced approach to saying what is good and what isn't good, that news station isn't going to activate our emotional brain centers and keep us wanting to watch as much as one that says, the world is absolutely falling apart. If you don't watch this next section of the news, you are going to be at risk of having something terrible happen. Breaking news has to be happening all the time because you need to have something to put in that bar that runs along the bottom of the screen. Right. Um, and, you know, as it relates to social media, um, what you see is that the voices that tend to be most prominent are those that are, are calling out other people for being bad. And, so what then develops is different camps of people who are all kind of patting each other on the back and saying, we know best. These other people uh, have no idea what's going on. And usually that tends to be split down something like a political affiliation. And I see this in my social media, as I'm sure you do in yours, is that you have the Republicans and the Democrats. And both of these sides keep saying how horrible the other one is. And there's really not a whole lot of actual conversation about similarities and where we can make progress, right? It's a, a reflection of what you see in government right now. And so with all of this said, I think the goal is for anyone who wants to continue using technology, I'm definitely one of those people, is to have a plan for how we interact with technology so that we are using it and it's not using us, so that we are benefiting from it and it doesn't take away from our quality of life. And to this end, my dad and I developed this tool in our book, which we call the test of time. And it's a helpful acronym that anybody can apply. Basically, anytime they're engaging with modern technology, these digital technologies like TV, even radio, but cell phones, computer screens. And the test of time is T-I-M-E. 
T is for time restricted. So that means that when you are engaging with this technology, you want to set yourself a limit for how much time you're willing to spend. If you want to watch a TV show and that TV show is 30 minutes, set a timer for 30 minutes. And that'll help you so that when the timer goes off, you say, okay, I wanted to watch 30 minutes worth of TV. I'm not going to let the, the autoplay take me into the next four or five episodes. Same thing with social media. You want to go on social media check-in, that's okay. Maybe give yourself 10, 15 minutes. But you want to be clear that when that timer goes off, that's the time that you then shut off that media. I is for intentional. One thing that we have been finding is that a lot of people are getting dragged into these modern technologies without having much of a say as to how it happens. Um, I know this has happened to me. I'll be in an elevator. I'll be waiting for food or whatever. Next thing I know, I'm... 20 minutes deep in social media because I don't know, I took it out of my, I took my phone out of my pocket and this just happened. So intentional meeting, you want to have a plan for what you're doing with that media. If you want to go on social media, see how your friends and family members are doing, that's okay. But maybe you don't need to see how your second cousin twice removes daughter's friend is doing, you know, that's not necessarily beneficial to you. So be right. intentional about how you engage with this. And then M is for mindful. And kind of getting back to our previous points here, something that, that we see is that a lot of the time when we're engaging with modern media, we find ourselves becoming mindless in the consumption. And so maybe then that's creating stress in our bodies. And maybe that's creating feelings of anger or anxiety. Um, or maybe it's just, you know, making us sad. And being mindful about the way that we take in these technologies means that we're aware of how it is changing the way that we feel while we're engaging with it. So if you're watching the news and you're 20 minutes in and you're saying, you know, I'm getting so mad about what's going on in the world, then you can maybe pause and say, wait a second, am I actually learning anything right now or am I just being more upset? Because it doesn't mean that you can't watch the news, but maybe this just is no longer helpful to you. And so E, the last part of the T-I-M-E acronym is for enriching. And I look at this as the most important step. Enriching means that you want to make sure that every time you're engaging with digital media, you're getting something positive out of it, that you come away with a net benefit. And the best way to apply this is after you've finished engaging with media, let's say watching TV, you watch the 30-minute TV show, you can ask yourself, was that a benefit in my life? So if you're watching some beautiful uh, Discovery Channel show about animals and I don't know, some forest, you might say, yes, that's wonderful. I was renewed. I feel an increased sense of connectedness with nature. And I feel more calm than when I went in. You could say that was a positive experience. I would do that again. But if you're watching three hours of reality TV, and you finish up and you ask yourself, was this an enriching experience? You might say, no, I really could have done a whole lot of other things with my time. And when that happens, when you realize it wasn't the best use of your time, then you come back to the start. And so next time that you engage with this media, you say, how can I change this time parameter? How can I change the intentionality parameter? How can I make it more mindful so that it's an evolving, iterative approach to making sure that you are best benefiting from your technology? Great. That's a, a great, straightforward tool. And it kind of oversimplify kind of what you said is it seems like it's much of it is degrees, not binary. Sure. Um, and we kind of need to give ourselves a little bit of grace too, that we may get sucked into these cycles because that's what it's designed to do. But when you catch yourself, you know, pause and then find a way to kind of reclaim that. Is that a fair way to say that? 
I think that's absolutely accurate. And, you know, I will watch movies sometimes as well. It's not telling people that you shouldn't enjoy this stuff. Um, it's not telling people that you need to blame yourself if you do get sucked into hours of social media. And especially right now where a lot of people are home, they're not able to go to their jobs, do their usual routine. It's very easy to to spend more time engaging with digital technology, checking social media, watching TV. And certainly I'm not telling people they need to be upset with themselves if they do that for multiple hours a day. Sure. But the bottom line would be, if you're doing that and you're happy with it, then okay, maybe don't make any changes. But if you're doing that and you feel like, hmm, I kind of wish that I wasn't so fixated on this for so much of my day, then that's where you can apply this and start making some small changes and see if that improves your quality of life. And if so, maybe continue. Yeah. So kind of, um, you know, is it impacting your relationships? Um, you know, your family, I'm married, I have three little girls, you know, are there things bubbling up that you should be like, Oh, this is kind of impeding on this, that, or the other. Um, and you kind of dig into this, I, th- I believe in the book called the disconnection syndrome. And so how does that relate to what we just spoke to? Sure. Well, we talk about this disconnection syndrome as a physical um, manifestation in the brain where we have these two parts of the brain that have become disconnected. They're no longer communicating as well as they should be. And one of those parts of the brain is the prefrontal cortex that is essential in enabling us to make well thought out decisions. The other part is the amygdala, which is part of the limbic system which is kind of an emotional center of the brain that tends to get us to make more impulsive decisions. And what we need to be able to uh, manage the world and to be able to make good decisions is for those two parts of the brain to be in constant communication. But we see that many aspects of the modern world have disabled that communication. So when that happens, we make poor choices. As it relates to, again, disconnection syndrome, we're talking about a physical breakdown between the connection in these two regions of the brain. But as that manifests in, in aspects of our lives, what we talk about is that we are disconnected from good health. We are disconnected from our own mental and physical health. We are disconnected from each other and we're disconnected from the planet as a whole. And so what we seek to do in the book is give people the tools to reconnect. And so that means reconnecting with yourself, reconnecting with other people, reconnecting with the environment. because. As it turns out, this reconnection is what is strongly correlated with higher levels of general well-being. Um, we know, for example, that people who spend more time in nature tend to do better as far as their general health, but also their mental health. We know that people who have stronger relationships with other people tend to do better in their physical health as well as their mental health. And we know, obviously, that people who have a stronger relationship with their own, um, with their own health meaning that they're looking after themselves, tend to do better with physical and mental health. So what we're advocating for here is that people who are out there experiencing the modern world and are probably experiencing some of this disconnection where they they feel like their health isn't what they wish it could be. They feel like their mental health isn't what they wish it could be. They feel like they could have stronger bonds with their friends and family Um, that they start making some of these changes that we talk about in the book, which are as simple as getting a little bit more sleep, right, as a starting point, that will enable them to move away from disconnection and into reconnection, which is really, we argue, the, the default state for humans. We are 
is we are we're basically set up for connection and it's just that certain aspects of our world try to convince us that it's better to be more disconnected and it's it's just not a good plan it's not working out for us and it's time to make a change yeah we're definitely designed for community and uh you know foundationally it is on the individual right self-care um if you don't bring your best self it's going to be hard to um contribute to your family to your work um or even bring your best self forward um you you kind of touch on you know at the beginning of this we talked about actionable information um in the book you do lay out a number of things to include the brain detox and so can you unpack that a little bit more? Sure. Well, we have a 10-day plan at the end of the book where we outline exactly what people need to do to start improving their brain function, to start improving their decisions, and to start reconnecting. And while there are 10 days, it's, it's not so important that you have to follow it in this exact format. What's important is to find where you can can get off of the vicious cycle of making poor decisions and start getting onto the cycle of making better decisions. And so what I would advocate for is that whoever's listening, consider one of the following things as a starting point for wiring your brain for better decisions and for reconnection. You can start by changing the way that you interface with digital technology. So we talked about this test of time. I think that's a wonderful way to start reclaiming a bit of mental real estate that otherwise would be taken up by potentially mindless consumption of this media. You can start by getting a little bit more exposure to nature. Scientists have found that even 20 minutes of exposure to nature can lower levels of stress. They've also found that just 10 seconds of looking at a picture of nature leads people to make better decisions. So it really doesn't take much getting a bit of nature in your life, whether that's a plant in your home, getting outside if you can, or even looking at pictures of nature is a wonderful place to start. Sleep tends to be one of these things that is completely undervalued and does so much for every aspect of our health, our emotional health, our physical health, our general well-being. So if you're able to start advocating for both you and ideally whoever else in your family is involved with this to get about seven to eight hours of sleep each night, that is going to help you to reset your brain for better thinking. And it's probably going to make a significant improvement or it will lead to a significant improvement on your relationships. Because as I mentioned before, um, sleep is involved with emotional reactivity. When we don't get enough sleep, we're actually more emotionally reactive. And that creates a whole myriad of other problems. Yep. So sleep. Also, we talked a bit about mindfulness and meditation. That is a fantastic way to, to get insight into how your brain is working. And if you are able to set aside 12 or so minutes a day, and it doesn't even have to be that. If you're just starting this, give yourself two minutes and see what happens when you close your eyes and pay attention to your breathing. Nothing more complicated than that. You will probably find that it is complete chaos inside of your brain. That's, that's what I found when I started doing this. This is what a lot of people experience. That is basically you gaining insight into how your brain is operating. It's like you pulled back the covering of your computer and you're seeing how things are working. And it's just, it's again, it's chaos. But why that's so important is that will then give you insight into how much you can improve. If you just do a couple of minutes of paying attention to your breath each day, that's going to start bringing things into more 
uh, or better order so that you can make better decisions and have better relationships, all the things throughout your day. So again, go ahead. So it's just assessing where you are, not evaluating. Exactly. Very key that you make that point because the last thing you want to do is be judgmental. You're not trying to uh, have any judgment as to how your brain is working. It's just observing. Just close your eyes, watch your breath. You're going to get distracted. You're going to say, this is unnecessary. This is um, not enjoyable. Don't worry about all that stuff. Just give yourself the opportunity to see what's going on. I like to say before I start my meditation that there is nothing productive that I need to do for the next however long because my brain will invariably try to convince me that I need to be taking notes, that I need to be uh, getting something else done. Just give yourself the moment. You deserve it. Everyone deserves to have at least a couple of minutes a day carved out for nothing but observation. And then the next thing I would say is exercise. So it's obviously something that's important to you. Uh, It's something that's important to me. We talk about exercise as important to our health, but as it relates to our brain function, it turns out that moderate exercise helps to activate the part of the brain that enables us to make good decisions. And even more important, exercise is one of these ways that we can increase something called brain-derived neurotrophic factor or BDNF. And why is that so important is because brain-derived neurotrophic factor acts as a fertilizer for new neuron connections. So it helps to solidify the changes that we're making in our brains from all of the other stuff and keep it in place such that our brains then become the brains that continue to make better decisions, that continue to support better relationships and better thinking. So really important to engage in some exercise, some movement. And again, you may have slightly different opinion on this, which is great, but I tell people just like with meditation, if you're not doing any exercise, the goal isn't to get out there and do 30 minutes a day, five days a week. It's um, just moving. It's finding something that you can get out and, and move, whether that's going for a walk around the block or even just doing um, some you know, jogging in place in your apartment. It's something that you can do that you enjoy that isn't going to cause you a whole bunch of trauma on your body that you can then sustain. Right. Yeah, you don't have to go out and start running five miles or do CrossFit immediately, go out and just just move. Yeah. And then uh, to kind of pull it all together, something that we've continued to talk about is the role of interpersonal connection, the role of having strong bonds with the people around you, your friends, family, your loved ones. It is so, so paradoxical that in the modern world, even though the population of the world is, you know, it's obviously bigger than it's ever been before, billions and billions of people that we're seeing such high rates of loneliness. And there are a couple of surveys that have been done in the United States recently that show that about 50% of Americans are experiencing loneliness relatively frequently. So how is that possible that we have so many people, so many opportunities for connection that people are so embedded in this social media and yet feel lonely? Well, it turns out that we need something more than just a couple of messages on Facebook occasionally or a, a like on an Instagram post to keep us going. So I would say that the modern world is setting us up for loneliness because the connections that we're making with other people digitally aren't as strong as the ones that we used to be making when we were physically interfacing with other people. So in order for us to be successful, the vast majority of people to be successful for mental health or physical health, we need to be embedded in a social network. And it's not necessarily a digital social network, although that can be a supplement to this. And what I recommend to people is 
just find somebody that you haven't spoken to in a while that you care about. And that can be family member, a friend, it can be um, a, a distant relative, whatever it is. We just have to start building in these connections again. I'm a big fan of talking to strangers. I think it's a wonderful way to interface with people that you don't otherwise have a chance to talk to. Um, and even if you want to do this primarily through the internet, studies have found that when you are engaging actively with social media, that means commenting on other people's posts, that means giving them uh, words of support, perhaps, if they're posting something, that means actually reading what they're saying and responding in such a way that shows that you care and that you're engaging with them in a way that requires you to think about stuff a little bit more, that that is associated with higher levels of wellness, whereas people who are just passively engaging with social media, we, we all know what that looks like. It's just scrolling scroll. through. Yeah, <laughs> that that's actually associated with lower levels of well-being. So it's all about finding ways to build in a little bit more social connection. And there are so many opportunities to do that. It's just that we tend to gravitate towards the easier pseudo social connection methods that aren't really doing much for our mental health. And it's time that we try to move away from that and build in some of the more meaningful stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I find myself, even with my wife, occasionally we get stuck into the texting and then we don't have good conversation. And, and because it's just text, um, you lose elements of the emotional aspect, context to the communication sometimes, and it can lead to, you know, not the best conversations when you do reconnect at times. Um, and then conversely, you know, with this quarantining, it's kind of forcing a reevaluation, at least in our house, how we spend our time. And then using, you know, the platform we're using right now to communicate as a web conferencing uh, where we just set up uh, a double date with friends who moved away uh, and we haven't seen or talked to them much, but we're going to do a Zoom connection and have a glass of wine and connect. Um, I, I think that's great. I actually did, well, I've been doing a lot of, a lot of FaceTime and Zoom connections. I did one the other day with a bunch of neuroscientists across the world. So I think there were over 100 people in this group. But we have these opportunities. It's about applying that test of time thing. And specifically, I think it's about being mindful and intentional about what we're doing. So if you're having this Zoom call with your friends, it might be tempting to say, okay, well, we're online, so I'm just going to be on my phone here or distracted. And it's about bringing your full presence to these encounters. Some of the best chats I've had recently, well, of course, given the quarantine, have been through conversations like the one we're having right now, where we are uh, engaging digitally. But there's such a difference in this conversation where we're both fully focused on the conversation compared to what a lot of the time happens, where you're on the phone with somebody, but you're also doing something else on your phone, or you're trying to get something done around the house, or you know, you do a, a two-minute check-in with a text message or, or two, but you're not really caring about what you say. So the point would be, these types of interactions can be wonderful, but you have to commit to them. You have to make them important just like you would if you were meeting in person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Austin, we're coming up on time. Uh, grateful for the amount of time, the wealth of information, not just the science behind it, but really the practical. Um, and there's a ton of practical information in the book, Brainwash. Uh, I'll close out with three personal questions. So one, what are you reading right now? Well, I'm reading a lot of scientific literature on coronavirus, actually. <laughs> it, I'm 
I'm trying to do what I can to bring that information to the public in a way that is helpful and also to combine it with methods of sustaining mental and physical health in this time of quarantine. So I'm, I'm actually reading literature on how um, people adapt to quarantine and what that does to their mental health, what it does to their experiences, and trying to translate that into uh, applicable information for people who are watching or listening to my videos. As far as the more personal development literature or books, um, I'm kind of in the middle of a bunch of books. I'm, I'm rereading um, a book by Dr. Jeffrey Bland, which is called The Disease Delusion. I'm reading some work by Alan Watts. I'm kind of always reading work by Alan Watts, um, but specifically reading a book that he's written about anxiety, which I think is really relevant in the current moment. And I think those are the, yeah, more of the fun books that I'm reading at the moment. Okay. Uh, so what are you listening to, music or podcasting? Uh, I'm actually taking a bit of a break from listening to podcasts at the moment, and I'm doing more music. I think that it's been helpful to me because I'm doing a lot of, um, as I said, a lot of reading about coronavirus, both through the news and through medical literature. And so I don't, I, I think I'm getting a lot of information just in the day to day right now. And, and podcasts sometimes are, when I'm saturated, don't do so well as far as, uh, helping me to improve my quality of life. So I'm, I'm listening to more music and I'm listening to a little bit less lyric heavy, more melodic music because I find that that is more calming to me and helps to get me into a bit more of a, a state of flow with my work. Great. Great. And this is the rest and recovery podcast. So do you have your uh, favorite rest and recovery method that you like to do to just decompress? Yeah, well, my overall favorite thing that I do in the day as far as getting me into the right mental state and allowing me to recover from whatever else is going on is my meditation practice. I do 20 minutes of meditation in the morning. I tend to do it after coffee, which may not work for everybody, but for me, it enables me to not fall asleep when I'm sitting on the couch for 20 minutes. Um, but it is the best way that I, as I said before, can reset and see where my brain is at and try to bring that down to a, a more steady state, relaxed uh, place for me to start the day. I also try to do something towards the end of the day as far as just a bit of movement. And then after that, some of the kind of decompression as after the exercise to get me into a good place for, for sleeping. Um, I think those are the big things. Okay. And one final question. Uh, where can people find you on the interweb on the interwebs yeah i have a instagram account it's at austin perlmutter i have a twitter account it's at austin pearl md and if people are interested in reading blogs that i've written that my dad have written about these topics the best spot to go is brainwashbook.com great again austin appreciate your time and insights have a great day thanks for having me scott Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Austin Perlmutter. We cover a lot of practical tips and you can find out more from the book at brainwashbook.com. If you found this of value and know someone who could also uh, get a lot out of this, please share. Also, uh, please provide a uh, review 
on any of the platforms that you're listening to, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Anchor. Uh, your reviews, five-star reviews, is helpful in getting the word out on the helpful content that we here at the Rest and Recovery Podcast are trying to get out. Thank you for listening. Have a great day. Remember, be rested, be well.